at 17 When I was lean and mean, naive and green The bosses wives seduced me and we made love Night and day we fit just like a glove Not all fun, for there was pain. But I always found sunshine and the rain. The light hey everybody, it's Tommy Canelli, and welcome back to Before the Lights Podcast. The show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Joining me today is an actor in the Irishman. I married a mobster and mafia killers. He's the author of the book, The Life, a true story about a Brooklyn boy seduced into the dark world of the mafia. He was once an enforcer of the violent Colombo crime family, which is one of the five families in New York City. He faced life in prison in which corruption eventually saved him. Please welcome to the show, Larry Mazza. As we were talking before, your family is from Sicily and Naples, as is mine. Uh, family lineage... Yeah that you may have that was involved in Cosa Nostra? Well, the, the closest I have is my Uncle Albert, uh, my mom's brother. He is what's considered a dinosaur in the Colombo family. He goes all the way back to Junior Persico, the longtime boss. Uh, but back to the, uh, you know, even before that, before Junior was a boss. As a matter of fact, uh, here's a funny tidbit. In, in the movie The Godfather, there's a scene where they're going to choke a guy at the bar, that's Larry Gallo, Crazy Joe Gallo's brother. Yeah. Well, Junior Persico was the one doing the strangling. My uncle Albert was in the crash car outside. You see him in the uh, in the movie, but not my real uncle, but somebody portraying him. So, uh, yeah, he's been, he's been around a long, long time, but never invited me or his brother or any of uh, the kids into the life. That's a really good tidbit. Your youth life, um, athlete, and I also understand that you. Uh were involved in teaching karate. Yes. Well, I, I played all sports. You know, I played football, basketball, baseball, and I was good at all of them. Uh, and I started karate at about 12 years old with my father. Then I went on uh, to a, a, a local champion named Lou Neglia. He's a four-time champ. I, I was with him for about four years. Then as I got a little bit older and started driving around 17. I, I, I didn't like the commitment as much. I, I weakened a little bit. So I went to, uh, to take a boxing with a good fellow from the Colombo family named Angela Defendus, who was on Avenue at Beck Beach Bodybuilding. And then when I was splitting my time in Florida, my family had a condo there, and I would go spend a lot of months. I, I, I trained with a fellow named Donnie Hare and uh, Don the Dragon Wilson, who was an 11-time champ. Later on, Phil Collins, uh, Dave DeQuala, uh all great fighters. And uh, I did. I opened the gym, and we had a dojo. We actually had a cage at one time, although I never did MMA. And uh, I did instruct, and uh, I, I was I got my second degree from Don the Dragon Wilson. Nice. What was your career outlook as a teenager? Was it to follow in your father's footsteps in getting into the fire department? Yeah, I, I, I did very well in school uh, without really being scholarly or, or, or applying myself. I grasped everything just by going to class. So I got A's and B's. 
but my father, you know, he would have paid for my college and he, he did. I went to John Jay for a, for a semester or a term uh, or a year, I guess it's called. Uh, my, my brother went to college. He paid for that. But he never really saw me as college material, but he thought I could really do well on the fire department and guided me that way. And that's why I went to John Jay. Uh, and I was planning on becoming a fireman and hopefully rise in that to maybe, you know, he was a lieutenant. Maybe I could have been a captain or a chief. And he felt that would have definitely, I had what it took to get there. As a delivery boy, you're with Danza Supermarket. And at age 17, started being seduced by older women. Linda Shiro was 32, but she said she was 29 and you said you were 18. So it kind of went both ways. Yeah. If you were told that your life would be completely changed before you had a bottle of wine and some M&M's, would you still have gone through with it? Uh, well, you know, at that age, you think with the wrong head, as they say. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I did fall for her. There was true feelings uh, or it wouldn't last in almost 10 years. So I can't say I would have stopped that. That's the thing. You know, there's a lot of other things I might not have done. But once I felt once there was a true love involved, it was hard to walk away. And that relationship went on for 10 years. When did, Larry, did you realize that she was the wife of mobster Greg Scarpa, who was nicknamed Mad Hatter, Hannibal, the Grim Reaper? He had killed more than 100, maybe some people say 200 people. I don't think anybody really knows that number. But when did you realize that this was the wife of Greg? Nobody knows. Yeah. Well, you know, it took a, a while because I was pretty naive to, to life. Like I said, my Uncle Albert never really brought us around and taught us or groomed us or educated us on that life, kept us away. And while I was with her, I thought I eventually knew she was married. The very beginning, I didn't. But then soon enough, I knew she had kids and a life, taking kids to school. After about six months, she started uh, talking more and more about him. And I at first thought he might have been a, a, a traveling salesman or a, a doctor that had crazy hours because there was so much time for us to be together. I later found out uh, he had two other wives and two other lives uh, and then ultimately found out even later on this yet another one. So he had a whole bunch of uh, different lives going on with, with women. And uh but after probably, like I said, six months, I knew. Then it took about another six months of her trying to convince me to meet him, like it would be a good idea, <laughs> that he's influential. I know, it's a tough thing to handle. Uh, but she said he could help me, and uh, they were opening up this company that she recommended me be the sales manager. And a beautiful picture was painted, and not that it wasn't true. So I even talked to my father about it. He says, take a shot, go for it. You know, especially at the fire department test that I was waiting for was pushed aside by the federal courts because of some, uh, I guess, uh, uh, I hate to say it. Minorities had a problem with it, saying it was too hard. I guess the affirmative action thing kicked in. So there was a two year hold and then another two years before I could take another test. So I took this job and it started out. Real good. I was doing well. Uh, but ultimately, the company dissolved. There was a big fire of some kind in the factory. So I was out of work in no man's land. And uh, 
that's when this racket opened up to me. As you stated, Greg had three wives total, Linda being one of them. Did you ever think you were being set up by him when he gave you his blessing to continue the affair with his wife? Oh, uh, you know, I, I didn't because, you know, it, it, it would happen before that. There was months where we were getting very close, Greg and I. Okay. And he was confiding in me in other things, including his other lives. So there were secrets that he was divulging that, you know, made me feel a sense of loyalty. And I couldn't expose that. And I understood and I wouldn't tell Linda or talk to her about it. Uh, and the funny thing is, you know, Linda was the only one he didn't marry. You know, they were like common law. He married okay. Lily. He married Connie. So I could never figure that out. Uh, but Linda was the youngest. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I, I never thought he was setting me up. Maybe I'm even more naive than ever not to think that. But I just believed him. And we had too much of a bond forming you know, between knowing, you know, when he did give me the approval and the secrets that I had and different things, uh, thank God that wasn't the case. Did it ever come up? And for my listeners, some people are going to understand this and other listeners, you're not. So I'm going to try and help you out here. There's a Cosa Nostra rule that you cannot sleep with the wife of a made man. Did this ever come up? Right. Well, after he told me, Okay, that he knew what was going on, and we talked about it. We walked outside, and we took this little walk together, and we leaned on the the parking meter. I'll never forget it. We used to lean on the meter and take the sun. And he said, "You know, uh, this has to stay between us." He says, "If anybody outside of the three of us, meaning me, him, and Linda, find out, him and I will be killed." So I was told then that this is a rule. This is taboo, and it's it's a mortal sin. Uh, but now that we're on that, later on, I was also told that going against the family, killing the boss is a mortal sin. Drugs is a mortal sin. Uh, ratting is a mortal sin. Talking to the law in any way, shape, or form is a mortal sin. And every one of these rules was being broken every day. Yes. So, you know, uh, it's a rule, but... If, you, if nobody's paying attention to the rules, and they're not. In 1985, you meet a hairdresser, Christine, and you start dating her as well, and you end up marrying Christine. Right. Did you break it yes. off with Linda then? I did. I did. It just, you know, I, well, she, was, she was so upset uh, at that that she stopped talking to me for about a year. Mm. So that's how it ended. Uh, you know, I'm not saying it would have or wouldn't have, but she ended it, not me, because uh, obviously I was with somebody else. And I could never understand that because so was she, you know, and I always told her I need to have a life of my own at some point. I need I want to have a, a son or a daughter or, or you know, mm -hmm. I want to have a family someday. And, you know, she, she told me I would, she was all I ever needed. Uh, and in, in some ways she was right. But, you know, I still wanted to have a family. So. You stated that Greg had been helping you with some legitimate business ventures. How did they pull you in then to get you involved into the life? Well, you know, it, it's, it, it, I mentioned before that when the company that I was working for dissolved and, and the factory burned down uh, and there was no more business, I was sort of in no man's land. I missed the, the test 
uh, the fire department test. Uh, I was out of college. I finished, you know, I did the one year and that was it. So I remember Linda asking Greg if there's something he can do to help me earn. And he always knew that I was good with numbers. So he brought me into the number business. And I had some ways that I, I helped him expand it. And then uh, we also branched into sports, which he was never into, the bookmaking and, and, and horse racing. And it just flourished from taking the lowest form of business numbers that I built up a little mini sports empire. And uh, then I was in. I mean, I was making a lot of money and I was important. Aside from being a friend that I thought I was somebody like a son to him, uh, I was also a pretty big earner. And uh, and that just sort of, you know, brought me higher and higher. And uh, I always say it's baby steps. They didn't pull me in or force me in. Nobody put a gun to my head. You know, uh, it's a decision I made at a young age that uh, I wouldn't make with more wisdom. And that's why it's usually young kids that get corrupted and brought into the life uh, because they're corrupted. Mm-hmm. When they're, you know, they're, you can convince them or, or, or they just see things like it's going to be a great life. Uh, and then as years go by, you learn it's not. And there's a lot of treachery and backstabbing. So, but to answer your question, uh, it's baby steps. The number business was the start. Then it branched into sports and horses. And I was real good with that. And he saw it. So he gave me more and more to do. Uh, then you get into the Shylock business, which is a little bit more, uh, it's, it's tougher. It's, it's more ruthless cause you can't, you can't have this much of a heart to be a success in that business. Uh, and he once told me the reason he's a success in his exact words, because I had given somebody a break. He said, the reason I'm successful is cause I'm a scumbag. Those were his words to me, you know, about him. Uh, and it was a time that I gave a, a, an old basketball coach of mine Christmas. I let him skip the week because he had kids. And I said, I don't worry about it. Just, and he banged the table and called me a sucker and walked away from me. So it's, it's a different ball game. You know, you, you, you can't have a heart at all in, in the Shylock business. You had mentioned that your parents had met Greg and your dad gave you basically his approval to say, you know, take a shot, see what he has to say with the business venture. You mentioned that Greg called himself a scumbag. Right. And what I find coincidental in that is doing some stuff is your grandmother called him the devil. Did, did it ever come to you thinking yeah. that maybe grandma yeah. might be right this whole time? Well, you know, it's well, in hindsight, we all laugh about that in a, in a, uh, in a loving way and say, you know, the older, the wisdom, the wiser. And she lived through a lot in her, you know, she was uh, uh, Carlo we live really literally steps away from his house. So she okay. was very friendly with the wife. Uh, you know, her son, Albert had brought around gangsters, big name gangsters like, uh, Sally D'Ambrosio, uh, you know, Sal Albanese, all old Nick Jr. Persico, a whole bunch of old time mob guys that were always around. So she knew and, 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 and always said, don't trust anybody. Don't trust anybody. I was very trusting. And I still am, you know, uh, but no, in hindsight, she's right. And you know what? There's not too many people that can deny that the guy had very little as far as scruples and ethics. It was all about him and his money, you know, mm-hmm. Larry, how important is street smarts to survival in La Cosa Nostra? It's, it's 
paramount, paramount. The, the, the schooling you get in, you know, going to school is not going to help you. It's being educated and groomed by a guy like Greg to teach you the ins and outs, to teach you how to survive. The psychology class I took in John Jay helped me. Uh, sort of the writing class, obviously, I wrote a book. <laughs> but those, great question. You have to be a step ahead. You have to be able to, it's like playing chess. you got to know the next guy's move before he makes it. And Greg was really the best at that. Uh, but then as time went on, we found out he had his crystal ball. So he was able to hear things and know things before others. Uh, but he was sharp. And, uh, you know, he taught me the, the way of life. Uh, you know, the one thing he didn't tell me was before his own son, Gregory, the true way to survive. And that's to have a friend in law enforcement or FBI. He never told us that. And that's probably, the, and there's probably a lot more guys doing that than him. At 27 years old, you were proposed to be a made man. And it's sometimes in the mafia life to be able to be proposed. You have to kill someone to be required to get your button. Was that part of the whole situation with you? Of course I was involved and you don't, you, you know, you don't have to uh, actually pull the trigger. You have to be involved, uh, whether you're a crash car, whether uh, you're a backup shooter, whether uh, you're the getaway driver. And I was all of those things, including dropping him off, knowing he was going to shoot a guy and coming around, you know. Uh, so there was probably a dozen of those before the war started that I was around. And when Greg Jr., uh, went away for 20 years and Greg got sick, he uh, insisted, uh, or not insisted, but he went to the family and requested strongly, and he was powerful enough that they should have done it immediately, uh, that me, Jimmy, and uh, another fellow named Joe uh, would get straightened out because he was going to need somebody with that badge that street badge to run his things if something happened to him while junior was away greg junior but what happened uh when junior persico went away and vic arena took over vic started making only guys close to him guys in long island and he was pushing the brooklyn guys aside so that was you know a lot of people don't realize that but that was one of the early moves that started causing tension and causing a split uh you know, which ultimately led to a war, which I'm mm -hmm. sure you'll get to. Uh, and, and, you know, some bodies turning up that people don't realize what led to the war. So, yeah, I was proposed at about 27 years old. Can you speak regarding so my listeners can understand how somebody's gradually pulled in of you getting an order just to go flatten someone's tire and then reading a headline the next day? Yeah. That's well, that's what I told you about baby steps. And that's a true story. And it's just, it's, uh, it's an ironic type of thing. Uh, he asked me to give a guy a flat. I don't ask any questions. I'm around long enough to, I'm not going to ask him why. I just, you know, I said to myself, no big deal. And, I, and I'm thinking the guy parked in his spot or, you know, maybe cut him off or something silly, you know. Uh, so I, give the, I had to go early in the morning, like six o'clock. I give the guy the flat. The next day, I read, man killed fixing flat. So I saw the car. It's the car I gave the flat to the picture. Guy's laying there with a jack in his hand or whatever. And I go to the club, 
And I remember I knew better than to bring it up. And I think it was one of my, it was the earliest test. He, if I would assist, Greg, what happened? I mean, that guy got killed. Like show any panic or worry or concern. I just didn't say boo. And, you know, I, again, in hindsight, it was probably a test to see if the next step could be taken when he asked me to buy a shovel and then to go with his son and dig a hole. And then, you know, just gradually, you know, then dump a body in the hole. And then, you know, it just that step. Then you're sitting next to him and you watch him shoot somebody like I did once. And then ultimately he sits next to you and watches you shoot somebody. It's a slow, gradual thing. And the other, uh, I guess, farce, not that it never happens, but your first hit is rarely a friend or somebody you know. It's generally somebody that it's just business. You don't have a personal relationship. You know, if they would have told me ever to kill my best friend, Jimmy, you know, that was my partner since we're kids, they're they're not going to ask me to do it. They better not because uh, it's not happening, you know. And I think that, you know, that happens to a a lot of us, you know, at a younger age where uh, you're not going to be asked to to kill the, you know, the friend. Mm -hmm. It said that you were involved in around 20 murders completely. But in the court cases, they said there was conspiracies up to about 120. Can you, but can you talk about the, you talked about maybe the first time of somebody you don't know, there was a situation where Greg's daughter was attacked, almost raped at a young age. And you were asked to give that guy a beating and then eventually go back and, and take him out. Right. Right. Well, let me tell you about the 120 conspiracies. What happens again, that came later on during the war and probably some of the pre pre-war stuff, but basically most of that was the war because there were 120 guys in the arena faction. We only had 30 or 40 guys, but every one of those 120 were mocked or targeted by us for death. Mm. So it becomes 120 conspiracies. I got you know, some of the guys hiding out in Italy. Some of them were in Canada, but they were still targets. So, but uh, to go back to that, yeah, little Linda, uh, you know, who had become like a sister to me. I was in a sweet 16, you know, I was godfather to her, her brother, little Joey, uh, comes, uh, calls, calls, uh, the club one day actually called her mother and the mother called us that the car service driver that usually takes her to school deviated from his course and took her to a park and tried seducing her and tried to get her, uh, you know, to, to do something, uh, and she was enough to get out of it uh, and get home and tell her mother. The mother called Greg at the club. I was sitting down playing cards. He came right over the table. She says, Larry, come on, we got to take a ride. I got up. He took my my cousin Joe and another fella, Sal, and Carmine Sessa. About five of us went. And we go to the car service. He's not there. We talk to the owner. At first, he's reluctant to give up any information. After Greg told him a few things, he gave us the address. So we go to the guy's house. He comes out and uh, we take him for a walk about two blocks to a park. And we just uh, beat him probably for 15 minutes. Just kept pounding him, broke almost every bone in his body. We heard a few more blows to the head. He would have been dead. So it took him about six weeks to get back home. And then several weeks more 
to get back to work. And in that time, Greg decided, uh, you know, probably with a little coaxing from Big Linda, who never, you know, was uh, never got over it, uh, that he needed to kill this guy. So a plan was formed that uh, we would keep calling the car service and eventually it would be him one day. Finally, after weeks of doing that, the guy pulls up and I was one of the guys that knew him. So that's basically why I was on it because I could point them out and make sure we get the right guy. And it's funny, neither Gregory or I was supposed to be on it. Our captain Scappy said it's personal. You're making it too personal. They can't be on it. So we asked him, but Greg knew that, how we felt. So anyway, uh, we got him that day. He came to the address, got in the car, and uh, he's seen it coming. So the first gunshot, he picked his arm up and hit him on the, in, on the side. So he got out of the car and he started running. Greg Jr. chased him down and uh, he finished him right in the middle of the street on 13th Avenue in front of a bus. The bus had to stop where the guy fell. Uh, probably dozens of people watching. Today, they would have their cameras out on their phone. Right. Back then, there were no cell phones. So uh, after it was done, Greg asked me to go back. So I put a baseball hat on, my sunglasses. I just went back and... Uh, you know, the, the typical Brooklyn answer, nobody nobody knows nothing. So there was no witnesses, nobody saw anything, and uh, and he was gone. You had several hits put out on you during the Columbo War that split the family into two factions. You had to wear a bulletproof vest. You were being yeah. shot at. Was it, Larry, just either kill or be killed during that time period? And how often was this happening? Well, you know, there's no doubt it was kill or be killed because it was a war. It was just like, uh, and when I say this, I understand the difference, that it's not for the same causes and it's not for the same ethics. Uh, but I was a soldier. We were trying to kill each other. And, you know, I got uh, I got shot at. Uh, there was attempts on my life, ultimately a very top guy, uh, sent a message through my uncle Albert that he was going to kill me. And his name was Nikki black Grancio. And, you know, uh, fast forward. And when that happened, we made him a number one target. But before that, there was several shootings, several killings, both ways. Uh, so it was definitely kill or be killed, you know? Uh, but we were, you know, very, very safe and smart. Like you said, we wore a vest. Uh, eventually, we had a scanner that we got the secret code between the uh, New York Task Force, Police Task Force, and the FBI. And Greg got that code. Uh, we always wondered where. We wondered a lot of things as the war was going on about him. But, uh, you know, he always told us it was somebody on the other side that was feeding him information. So, uh, but yeah, it was kill or be killed for sure. And, uh, the safest and the smartest survived. You ended up taking out Nikki black in a hit. It was you or him that was going to go. And um, it was like you said, it was a war. You end up seeing him through some binoculars. Mm -hmm. You guys followed him out and you ended you take him out. So that, that hit is, is done. I want to fast forward just a little bit. You were being sentenced and sent to prison on a racketeering indictment with charges of murder, gambling, and then, started to cooperate with the, with the feds. You went from life in prison to 10 years. 
due to the corruption of an ex-FBI agent. Larry, when did you start becoming aware that there was this corruption going on that maybe you could use it to your advantage? Well, here's what happened. While I, I was fighting the case, and I was also working on a potential play bargain, and my friend, my best friend Jimmy, was still on the lamb, so we were using him as a as a as, as a bargaining chip. And he knew, you know, he said because he told me from day one, whatever I do, he does. So if I was able to get him to come in, maybe they would come down from twenty four years to seventeen years. So this was going back and forth. But what happened was uh, it, it starts coming out that Greg is a uh, top echelon informer for many, many years. And I almost came to blows with guys over it. Uh, but eventually it came out. And when that happened, uh, I was now in a very bad position because people thought I knew about it. Uh, and I had been called into a few meetings. I didn't like the tone, you know, the things they were saying. Uh, so anyway, it started in my head that what am I doing here? I says, I have no future left in this family because my mentor was, uh, a 30 year informant. Uh, I now, I heard that the boss and his son, Alley boy knew about this for 20 years. I'm going to be a sacrificial lamb. So I talked to my attorney and the problem was they already knew everything. They had Carmine Sessor, the consulier. They had a couple of captains. They have several good fellas. They had, uh, you, you know, they, they, the Colombo family clogged the system with cooperators. That's what the prosecutor said. They didn't need me. But what happened was the corruption thing came out, and I spoke to my attorney about that, and I had a lot of details that helped them. And ultimately, they zeroed in on an agent. I'm not going to mention his name because he wound up beating the case on a technicality or because one of the uh, witnesses had uh, conflicting stories, which uh, was a, a main witness. So, you know, uh, they, they needed to know about that. And, you know, I, I got 10 years. Most of the time, if you could give them something really, really uh, strong or powerful or something they really need, guys go home in a year or two, you know. Sammy, the infamous Sammy got five years, you know, I did 10, uh, but I still did, you know, listen, I, I didn't have no blockbusters. If I wish I knew where Jimmy Hoffa was buried, they would have, they would have sent me home and gave me a million dollars, but you know, I gave them one of their own basically. So, uh, you know, uh, but the corruption, yeah, was, was very big part. And there's guys that are still in there, which it's not fair because, you know, it goes up pretty high. It's not only the, the alleged agent, but they let this agent get on the stand knowing he was bad, knowing he was lying. So there's guys away that, you know, for 30 years and stuff like that, that, you know, maybe enough is enough. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned that Greg Scarpa was working with the feds for about 30 years. And we talked about mm -hmm. how deadly he was and how many people he killed. So there could be questions from listeners going, wait a minute, mm -hmm. how can a guy that's being, an informant with the feds be able to kill and get away with it. But from my understanding, didn't it not go back to the Mississippi burning case? And he helped out with that. And also then was given carte blanche. Is that kind of what happened, Larry? Yeah, that's, you know, I wasn't around obviously when that all happened, but it all came out as public knowledge. And uh, 
I've had through forensics people and FBI agents who sometimes say more than they should. I learned a lot about that. And yes, that's when he got his carte blanche to do whatever he wanted. And the reason is, and the other thing that's important to know is Greg, as powerful as he was, was offered top positions in the give decision to the feds. Their ups were getting. So uh, that's the only reason he never took promotions. Did you have any close calls at any time during prison with people trying to retaliate against you? No, the, the, the very beginning, uh, I was called into uh, the men's room, the bathroom in, in prison, and three guys, Vic Arena, uh, Frankie Lasterino, and, and another friend, Mike, uh, that I grew up This is the first time they talked about Greg possibly being a rat. Uh, and I went after Vic because, uh, you know, you want to continue with this nonsense? The next day it came out in the paper. So they called me back in again and – you know, I use this term, but I had to put my tail between my legs because now it was true. And the things they were saying, uh, not Mike so much, but the other two, you had to know about this. Uh, and I didn't. I mean, I didn't know. Uh, I was taking orders just like some of those guys were. Uh, but no, I never really had uh, a situation like that. As a matter of fact, in the last two years of my case uh, that I was doing, I was in a, a a prison, Yazoo, Mississippi. That's one of the worst places you could ever be. And one of uh, a very high ranking guy comes in from another family. And I won't use his name because I like him a lot. And he had told me he wasn't going to get back into the life. Did get back in. And I remember him talking to me like we were still in the street talking about things and talking about cases and I had to stop him in his tracks and say, his name isn't Buddy. I say, Buddy, I says, you know, I didn't go out like a hero. I says, I, and he stopped me. He says, Larry, I know everything about you. And he was just furious. He said, you guys were 110% loyal guys. He says, Greg Scarpa ruined you and he ruined his life. Another week or so goes by, Jerry Capisi writes an article about me. And I don't know why he turned, because at one point, Capisi and I were amicable. He wrote some articles. He wanted to do my book when I get out, you know. Uh, but it was, wasn't a very nice article. Uh, what a vicious killer I was, and I was lucky to get 10 years, whatever. So somebody sends this in. Buddy tells me they sent this in expecting me do something or have somebody do something. And he took me to the men's room where, where the meeting always take place. And he rips up the article. He throws it in the toilet bowl. He starts spitting at it again, kicks the toilet bowl, keeps on flushing it down. He's so upset that I'm in this position. And, uh, you know, we can, we continued on for the next year and a half. And I remember, saying goodbye to him when I, I got free. And I says, I hope I see you in the free world someday. You know, and we talked about Florida together. But uh, like I said, I think he, he, from what I hear, he, you know, through the grapevine and through newspapers, he may still be in, in, in active. Larry, we talked about the rules of Cosa Nostra and how many are broken mm-hmm. on a daily basis. And mm-hmm. the Cosa Nostra is supposed to be this tight brotherhood. 
of in the families and it's tighter than you report, you give your life to that over your own family. With everything that's happened in the course of years throughout the Cosa Nostra, is it as tight as they say it is or is your own personal family more reliable? It's definitely not as tight. Uh, I don't know. You know, people say the old days. I don't believe it was ever tight. I think uh, some of the rules, like not, uh, you know, killing a boss. The bosses, like take John Gotti, for instance, when he got made, wasn't he told his rule about you can't go after a boss? Wasn't Vic Arena told that rule? All the guys selling drugs, they were told the same rule, you know, uh, and it's something I'll never forget. I remember Greg telling me, you know, they're going to tell you, they're going to ask you if you will put the family before your mother, she's on her deathbed. Okay. And in the conversation he had with me, he didn't come out and say it, but he made it clear that we're all bringing ourselves to the same evil level by answering the way we do. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cause I know me, Jimmy, Greg, Greg couldn't expect his son to really do that. Think about that. Greg Jr. Became a good fellow. He had to hear that, you know, from his father, that if your mother is on her deathbed, you will come to the family first. How does a father tell a kid to do that? It's just a matter of bringing everybody to the same devious, backstabbing, treacherous level. Because there were, a lot of them are selling drugs. They're taking over families. They're backstabbing. They're ratting, uh, trying to steal each other's businesses. I tell it, I, you know, I just told this story once, and I, I, I should tell it a little bit more, this one part. When I was away and Jimmy and I had a business, Jimmy was still on the lamb. He was free. They didn't catch him. They had no inkling of where he was. We were making about 3500 each a week in interest money, shallot money. With us being away, we had to pay some people to run it for us and collect and whatever. So we were getting 2500 more than enough, especially back in 1990. Okay? Everybody was okay. My family was saying, you know, I had a newborn baby. My son was was a year old. Jimmy had a two-year-old daughter. So after about six months, that $2,500 becomes $1,500. Some expenses, they're having trouble collecting, finding people, whatever. After another few months, it goes down to $750 each. Long story short, about a month before, but all this is coming out about Greg and this and that and more guys backstabbing, guys uh, copping out in a, in a way that affects everybody else's case in a bad way by admitting there's a family, admitting there's a war. And it's all falling apart. It's cracking. They give Jimmy $135 each, one for him, one for me. What is he going to do with $135 while he's hiding out on the lamb? And I, you know, we have kids and families. So what they were doing was Jimmy was going to come back. He wasn't going to allow them to rob us. He was going to come back and either get killed, kill them, or get pitched. I believe they wanted him to get pitched because if we're both away, they got the whole business. Mm -hmm. So that is the biggest rat move of all. 
while a guy is out there hiding out, you want to lure him back in. So one of the things I say, there's a lot more than one way you're at, okay? And the guys in that life will find it. Larry, what was the biggest price you paid for being in the life? Missing my son. You know, you can't make it up. Uh, you know, my, you know what I did to my family. But basically, my son was the hardest part because it's 10 years without me. He was one. I come home, he's 11. That's a lot of, a lot of time to be away and, you know, think your father's working. He always at work. He's at work. He'll be home, you know. Uh, but what I did to my whole family, that's tough. Mm-hmm. For me, let me say this. I just want to say this. For me, I adapted. Prison wasn't a killer. Prison didn't break me. You know, I could, I did the time and, but when you think about them and what you're doing to them, that's what hurts. Mm-hmm. Prison itself, you know, eh, and you know, some guys have so many, so much money and so much business and so many people involved. Uh, they really have no choice but to stay there or they're going to destroy, you know, their whole family. I, my only hope to help my family ever again was to come home. So, you know. It's the family. That's the killer. I can see that. In 2016, mm-hmm. you wrote the book, The Life. Folks, yep. in my yes. show notes, I'm going to put a link where you can get it. You go to LarryMaza-thelife.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. Please go there. Take a look at this. Get your hands on the copy of The Life. There's a lot more to this than what we're going through today. Larry, any chance that this possibly be, could show up on TV or a movie someday? Well, yeah, I, I have a producer, Joe Paletto, who I'm partners with now. And, uh, you know, the pandemic held us back, but we we, uh, we hired Nick Pelleggi, mm. and he's on board to write a, a TV series. He thinks it should be a TV series. Uh, and Joe's also working on, with, with, with a cop friend of mine, Tommy Bates, who's in the book, uh, who uh, was uh, integral in arresting the mob cops, those two bad cops. So he has two big projects, the mob cops and mine, the life. And he hired Nick Pelleggi and also Terry Winter. So we have the two best writers on board. So for something not to happen would be a surprise. It's just that it's so difficult getting everybody together. Uh, But hopefully things are getting better. But uh, it'll be it'll be something. It'll be something for sure. But uh, TV series is what they're thinking. That's cool. How did you end up becoming friends with Armand Asante? Because he wrote a testimony for your book. He played Gotti, which I think is the better Gotti movie out yeah. there. I mean, he was phenomenal in that movie. How did you guys get so close? First of all, he was incredible. And he's incredible in a lot of movies. Uh, and he's a gracious, fantastic human being. One of the best guys I've ever met. Very honest, and he helped me. But I met him in a restaurant by chance. I was uh, sitting down with some friends where having dinner and there was a little bit of a buzz behind me. So I turned around and I saw it was him and I'm not, I, you know, I've never been one to go over to a celebrity or a ball player or anything like that bothered him, but he was very kind, taking pictures with people. After all, the dust settled and everybody knew it was him. He's sitting down. After a while, I had to go to the men's room. And as I'm walking by, I see him looking at me and I'm looking back and uh, I just give him a thumbs up to let him know. I, I know it's him and I keep going on the way back. He's looking at me again. So I said, 
Hey, I go over, I shake his hand, Mr. Mr. Asante, uh, I'm, my name's Larry, it's nice to meet you. I want you to know you did a great job on John Gotti. Fantastic. He says, oh, you think so? I said, yeah, and I should know. So he said, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> so I told him who I was. He started pulling his hair out. He was going, I don't believe this. Because he was working on a project about the FBI, some corruption, and how they dealt with the mob for years and years. When he heard that I was that guy with Greg Scarpa, him and his agent were just, we wound up sitting together for two hours. And then he took my transcript. Uh, we met a few weeks later in Florida again. He invited me to his 20th anniversary of his cigar aficionado. Then I met him a few weeks later in Florida, then in New York. We met like several times and he read the uh, the book and he just, well, his testimonial says it all. He, he thought it was phenomenal. And, you know, it's been well received by others, too. You know, uh, Michael Madsen loved it. I, I got friendly with him. Uh, obviously, people know now Robert De Niro uh, hired me as a consultant because some of those cops I mentioned were his are his security now. And he was looking for somebody to talk to and, and get the the verbiage and, and the and the I guess the characteristics of somebody that was in life to play the Irishman. And they said me. So I got there. He told me about three times that the book was terrific. Uh, I once told him I should play Junior Percival. And he told me, you think I could play him? Come on, Mr. D, you can play anybody. So uh, then he took me to meet Scorsese. And Marty Scorsese is, is a fantastic guy. And then uh, ultimately Nick Pelleggi. And, you know, a lot of these guys are so, so busy. But Nick Pelleggi uh, got on board. And, you know, maybe the others will come back once it gets uh, – gets rolling. I could see Martin Scorsese directing it. You played, like you said, you played a hitman, took out Albert Anastasia in the Irishman. Yeah. Did you almost get the part of Joey Glimko? Well, no, I, I got the small part of, of, of the hitman. It's a small scene, but I read for several other parts and I, I, I can't use that word, you know, uh, use this word. And they did that. And some of the mannerisms, uh, one of the best ones is where he asked, how do you get rid of a weapon? And I told him, you know, most of our weapons are at the bottom of the, uh, of, of the uh, Cheapset Bay, you know, <laughs> the, the canal there. And I said, you know, get a scuba diver to go under there. And he changed it slightly, but he, he used that line. Uh, it, there was a bunch of stuff. Uh, but. I, I came close to getting a few other parts in there. You know, I never acted before. That was my first time. But what it did, it opened the door for me, and I played a corrupt cop in a true story. Uh, the guy's name was Joey Blasco out of Vegas, and uh, he was a corrupt ex-cop that worked for Tony Spilatro. That's Gino's, uh, Joe Pesci's character in Casino. Mm -hmm. And it's the Ron Rudin murder. And it's, uh, it's a really good show. And I had a and I, I, you know, the funny thing, I'm the guy that jumps out of the back seat with the gun and threatens the guy. So uh, that that was a good piece for me. Larry, what's your happiness today? I'm just blessed. Great family, uh, great wife, great uh, everything. I mean, I just, uh, you know, the gym's doing okay. Uh, we, we had a restaurant together. You know, we sold a restaurant. It was just too demanding. Uh I like the gym better. So I'm getting back in there, um, doing personal training. I handed off the martial arts to a young, that's a young guy's game. You know, I'm 60 now, so I can't be fighting and, and doing the 
things to to demonstrate like I did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Well, actually, up until I was 52, I did it. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm very happy. And and I and I'll say this, you know, I don't uh, I hear a lot of guys that are in my position and it's not a bad thing. They're doing this to to help other young kids not to take the same steps. I, I take a different approach because I'm not an angel, never was, never will be. But I don't need that life, and I didn't, to make a good living. I don't need that life, and I didn't, to have respect. I still get it. Uh, I could go into a restaurant. They give me my table like in the old days. They see me, and I'm a good tipper. So you don't need that life to be a success. Larry, thanks so much for taking time out of your day and talking about your previous life enlightening my listeners and being on before the lights. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. If you want me back, just give me a shout and it'd be, uh, I'd be more than happy to come back. We may do that. Uh, folks, if you would please rate and review the sure. show, please go to Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen and follow. If you would give me five stars, nice comments. It helps me grow the show immensely. This show is listener supported. So if you'd like to donate, go to the website before the lights and click on the donate page. If you would follow me on Instagram, at Before the Lights Podcast. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin. Happiness